Amen. All right. All right, show of hands uh, for those of you who have looked at the, the outline and thought, oh boy, here we go again. We got one person, I know more, yeah, there's a few more out there, all right. Yeah, I know, two-sided outline, I'm crazy, right? And we're starting at 1110, so uh, I think if you're putting together the, the, uh, the pieces, well, you might want to get comfortable, uh, but no... In all seriousness, actually today, I know it looks long, and uh, even if it was, that would be fine, because it's God's Word, but I'm hoping that this morning we'll be able to get through at least most of this pretty quickly. Um, We're to a passage here in Colossians that for the longest time I've been looking at from the very first time I read Colossians, and I read this last section of Colossians, we're going to be in chapter 4, and we're going to be in chapter 4 starting in verse 7, and it's... Paul's final greeting, it says he is saying goodbye, and he, you know, as you would a, in a salutation, if you will, before the letter is over. And as I read this, and I thought about this week to week, as I looked ahead, I had no idea where to go with this passage. Um, and uh, I'm really excited now, though, because after just studying and listening to some other guys who have preached on the same subject, uh, and, and just diving into God's Word, I really feel today we have something that is really, really cool that we're going to look at here at the end of the book of Colossians. Now, just to let you guys know, we are going to finish the book of Colossians in one sense this morning, but next week we're going to have one final sermon where we're going to look at all of Colossians as a whole, and we're going to summarize what we've seen through Colossians. And a lot of the reason I'm going to do that is because a lot of times when you go through a book, and it's been several weeks, or in this case months, since we've started, and now we're here uh, at the end of the book, that a lot of times we can lose the, uh, uh, the overall theme, the overall thing that, that we really should get out of a book if we, because we've focused on the pieces and not on the whole. So that's for next week. That's just a preview. Um, and some of that will even come out this morning as we go to Colossians chapter 4. Um, as we have been seeing throughout Colossians as a way of review really quickly, uh, and we'll do a whole lot more review next week as I just said, uh, the journey we've been taking has shown us this, that Christ is superior over everything and that he is all we need in our lives. And if I'm going to sum up everything, that's what we've looked at so far, that Christ is superior over all else. He is God himself who has given himself for us and therefore is superior over anything else in our lives and in this world, and therefore... We need to uh, realize that and strive to keep him as the center of our lives. And last week, we kind of talked about this idea that even in the center of our relationships, you know, the reason, uh, obviously our relationship with Christ should be centered on him. Our relationship with our church family should be centered on him. Uh, our families themselves should be centered around Christ. And in last week, we looked at the fact that even our way, the way we interact with outsiders, those who either don't know the faith or are just away from us, and how we react to them will depend on how we live a Christ-centered life. And that's kind of where we've been. And now we get to chapter 4, verse 7, and Paul is going to end his letter by talking about a bunch of people. Now, this is almost as interesting as a genealogy, right? So there's lots of names here, but I think as we look to see what Paul is saying to each and every one of these people, and as he even mentions their names, I think we can find some principles 
that will guide us today. And really what Paul is doing here by way of introduction is when he gets into this passage, he's, I think of, I read this a couple different places, but you think of like a, a missionary's newsletter, right? You get a missionary's newsletter and it tells you all about what's going on in their life. Uh, what else is usually in a missionary newsletter besides just the words? Pictures, right, okay. You've got all the words and then you've got a picture. Maybe it's them doing ministry Maybe it's them with their mission team. A lot of times you'll see that. You know, you'll, you'll see a, a, a missionary couple that has a picture of the other couples that are, are with them in the ministry. And we see this picture and it kind of carries along with, here's what I want to tell you, but here's a picture. And here's what you can see. And, and the same is true, I think, uh, this is what Paul is doing. He's given us a group photo. You know, it's kind of along with this letter, he's given us a photo of all the people who are with him and even the people then that, are going, that the letter is going to. And so that started making me, let me think a little bit about family photos. Because if we looked about throughout Colossians, we understand that people who are in Christ together are the family of God. And so we're family and Paul is giving us this family photo that he can send with this letter. They don't have a camera yet, so he does it by describing the people he's with. And ha- having family photos... Uh, as many of you know, is super important in our lives. Uh, and it's important not only to the family themselves that gets the family photos taken, but also the, the people that they send their photos to. You know, Christmas time comes along and you expect some people will send you a family photo. And you know what? You might get it and think, oh, okay, that's really nice they sent the photo. But if that photo didn't come, you would think something was missing. Uh, here's a great example of this. Um, I and my wife, even more specifically, have, a, have an issue with, we take a lot of pictures, but we don't put them anywhere for people to see. So what will happen is, uh, all of a sudden, we'll get family members and friends that will start calling us or talking to us and saying, hey, you know, where are your pictures? We want to see some pictures on Facebook, or we want to see you send a card to us with your pictures, and especially like grandparents who want to see their grandkids, and, and they know that we've got all these pictures, and yet there's nowhere for them to find them. And we get a lot of flack from that because there's a lot of people who want to know what's going on. And you say, well, I've talked to you every day. You know what's going on in our life. And yet that picture is so vitally important. And why is that? Well, I think you can tell a lot from a family photo. Actually, any photo for that matter. As the phrase goes, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? You see a picture and maybe you, don't, you have a letter or maybe you don't have a letter with it. But you can figure out some really cool things by just looking at the picture. You can see a lot about somebody by looking at their photos, right? So a lot of you in your past, or maybe even now, you know, you like to stalk people on Facebook. And maybe you don't have Facebook, but maybe you just like to, I love to do this, like go to somebody's house and if they have a photo album, I like to flip through. You know, because you get to see photos and they show you a person's life. They show you what a person finds important. They show you what a person's life has been like and who is important to them. And it's a, I love to see uh, older photos of people and just photos of seeing how their life has been progressing through photos. And it's really a cool opportunity. But the other thing you can sometimes see in a family photo, and maybe you've had one of these before. I remember I had one when I was a teenager with my family. And you get this photo taken of your family and then you look at it afterwards and you look at it and you're like, something was wrong. Like there was some kind of family strife. There was something, somebody was not feeling well, or mom and dad had just had a fight, or maybe the kids were just uh, just really annoying the parents. And you can look at that picture and you can almost see it in their faces. 
and, uh, and that, or forced smiles, that's always the best. Uh, but you can see a lot when you look at a photo. And so as we look at Paul's family photo here in Colossians 4, 7 through 18, I believe what we see here is more than just a closing greeting. It's more than just a salutation. It's more than just saying goodbye. It is so much more than this. We can see a lot from Paul's family photo. Just like a photo is worth a thousand words, I believe that looking at who Paul is talking about here in this passage is going to show us a lot about who Paul is. It's going to show us a whole lot about his ministry, and we're going to see what he finds truly important. And he's going to paint a view of his ministry, and he's going to point a view of what and who is truly important in his life. And so with that being said, let's go to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 18, and then we'll take some time to talk about what's going on here. And I apologize. These names in here, everybody pronounces different. So I'm going to do my best. But if I'm wrong, somebody will tell me. All right. So starting in verse 7 of Colossians chapter 4. Tychicus will remind you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and the Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and also does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the, house, or the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to uh, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry which you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. All right, so this is where we're going to go. We read this passage, and this morning, this is how this is going to work. We are going to give a quick overview of these verses, a quick overview of the people that we see in these verses, a quick overview of some of the ideas that might come out. Uh, We're going to look at the people, the characters, and also the recipients of this letter. And by putting those together, who's with Paul and also who he's writing to, it's going to give us a greater view of what he sees ministry as being. So we're going to start with this overview, and then we're going to follow up after that by taking the overview and then applying it to some general principles that I believe we can, we can gather from this text. So we're going to start by looking at the people here. We're going to be looking at the characters that are in Paul's photo. That's really what we're looking at. So we're going to start here with the first guy we come across, and that's Tychicus. Um, and what we see about Tychicus here is that he is loved by Paul, uh, he is faithful, he is a servant, and he is a fellow slave. All right, so those are some things we see about him. Uh, and remember, when, when Paul mentions somebody is faithful, you know, we have this idea of faithful just means that, you know, we're going to stick by somebody, and that is a very good point. But remember, in this time and age, Paul is a prisoner. 
He's been taken, he, he is living in, as, as a prisoner, and his life has not been easy. So somebody who has been faithful to Paul and somebody who has been faithful to God, this is not just an easy road. This is something that even could end up in death because faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Christ it was so uh, important to him that he even took it to the point where he was willing to be persecuted, as we even just saw in that video. And so he is a faithful servant. He is a fellow slave with Paul. What was Tychicus' ministry? Uh, His ministry was to deliver Paul's letters and bring back news. Basically, who Tychicus was is he was Paul's uh, messenger boy. He was going to take the letters that Paul had written, which would have been Philemon, Colossians, all right, because both of them are coming together, and he's going to send these letters with him. This isn't, see, this is before the day of the U.S. Postal Service. You can't just write a letter, put a stamp on it, and send it. No, you have to write it, put it in to somebody who will take it to the people that you want it for. This is a, something that would be an important thing for someone to do, or people wouldn't hear what Paul has to say. And so we see that he is faithful even in that. And not only was he going to go to deliver the letters and deliver the news about Paul, but the idea then also would be he would be coming back to Paul and giving him an update on what's going on in the church that he's sending this letter to. And so we see that this is an important thing. You have to trust somebody. You're going to give uh, your letter that is so important to you to get out there and make sure it's delivered. We see a little bit of history with Tychicus. We've seen him, and I'm not going to read all these verses. I would encourage you to look in, at some of these verses. I wrote them down for your benefit so you can study this out. But we see Tychicus other places in Scripture. We see that he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem, uh, even when others wouldn't, in Acts 20, verse 4. Uh, they collected money from the Macedonian churches, and they were going to Jerusalem to deliver that money. Uh, but in that process, everybody keeps telling Jesus and the people who are following him, or Paul and the people who are following him over there, that, hey, you're going to get killed. You're going to be persecuted. Why are you going to Jerusalem? And yet Paul and Tychicus and others uh, follow along and they go to Jerusalem. Later on, as we look at scripture, this is interesting, both in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 12, and in 2 Timothy 4, 12 through 13, we see that Paul recommends uh, Tychicus for pastoral ministry. He actually recommends to Titus that Tychicus should come and take his place for a short time so that Titus can come visit. And the same thing then is said even about Timothy. And Paul is saying, look, you can, Tychicus is going to take your place. He, really, Tychicus is one, well, maybe one of our first interim pastors. A guy who comes along to pastor a church while the pastor is gone. And that's what we see happening with him. So this is not just some random guy that is just some... Loser. Okay, that's not who Tychicus is. The exact opposite. Paul trusts him enough to send him with the letters and then later on even recommends him for pastoral ministry. Tychicus was a faithful man and a servant and fellow slave of Christ. The second character we see as we read through this passage is Onesimus. Now, if you guys were with us when we went through the book of Philemon, you will remember uh, Onesimus. Onesimus is the runaway slave that ran away from Philemon. And he comes to Paul, he gets saved under Paul's ministry, and then he becomes a brother. And now he's a brother in Christ going back to Philemon, going back to where he came from. Remember, Philemon was a, was a prominent person in the Colossian church. And so part of this, Onesimus is coming back, but he is also a fellow messenger with Tychicus. He's a fellow messenger. He's going along with Tychicus to, to deliver this letter. 
And so this is how important Onesimus has, been, has become. He's now delivering this letter. He's a messenger, and he's going back to Philemon with the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon to ask for Philemon to take him in as a brother in Christ. Now here's the cool thing. Just like with Tychicus, we see later on in his life that he had a ministry of a pastoral ministry. The same thing seems to be true of Onesimus. Now although we don't have this in scripture, church history tells us that Onesimus would actually go on to end up being the pastor or one of the pastors of the Colossian church. It's interesting, this runaway slave that comes to know Christ comes back to his, his master in, Colo- in Colossae and ends up according to church history, becoming a pastor there, we see that Paul had worked in his life and what he had been with Paul is now important to Paul and he goes on to do many things for Christ. Interesting as we look at that. The next person we see, the next character, is Aristarchus. I'm sorry, Aristarchus. Aristarchus. He is a fellow prisoner, we're told. He is a fellow prisoner. Um... And here's the thing, a fellow prisoner, this may be literal, this, may, this is definitely spiritual. Here's what I mean by this. Uh, scholars disagree on whether or not uh, Aristarchus, Aristarchus was, uh, they disagree whether he was literally a prisoner with Paul and he was literally been arrested by Rome and next to Paul as a prisoner for real, or is this passage just saying that he has been with Paul in his imprisonment and is a prisoner of Christ? If you remember back in Philemon, we looked at this idea of being a prisoner of Christ. And the idea there is that we are controlled by Christ. He is the one that we are chained to in a sense and that we are Christ's slaves. So the question is there. He may literally be a prisoner or he's at least a spiritual prisoner with Paul. But we see that he's with him even in the worst of times. And we see that with him. Actually, he's always at Paul's side even in the worst of situations. You see, Aristarchus was seized by a mob in Ephesus in Acts 19.29. He's with Paul in Ephesus, and it's, he is so much involved with Paul's ministry that when the mob wants to take somebody to make them pay for what Paul's ministry is doing, who do they come to? Well, they come and they grab Aristarchus. They grab him, and they, they take him to the theater where presumably they want to kill him or at least make him suffer. We also see him with Paul in Jerusalem, the same way we saw with, uh, with uh, Tychicus. He's in Jerusalem with Paul, even in the hard times, and then we now see him in Rome, Acts 24 and Acts 27 too. These are passages that we see Aristarchus and where he is with Paul. He has been faithful to Paul even in the worst of situations. So now we've got three of the characters here that Paul talks about, and then he moves on to the next one. And this next character many of us have heard of before, and this is an easy name to pronounce, it's Mark, okay? Uh, we've got character number four, which is Mark. Uh, he is the cousin of Barnabas. He's now, apparently, with Paul. Uh, cousin of Barnabas, if you remember Barnabas, interesting story with Barnabas, uh, when Paul first came to know Christ, it was Barnabas that introduced Paul to the rest of the disciples, that, it, that introduced him to the Christian world and introduced them, him to the church and Barnabas and then Paul would go on missionary journeys together and they would go and they would share the gospel and they would travel together. They were ministry partners for the longest time. Now in this one of these trips we see that Paul and Barnabas, uh, they're on the missionary journey and Mark backs out 
as they're going to a hard place that they know is going to be very difficult, Mark actually leaves to go home. And if you know that passage, you can, you can read this story in Acts 12, 25 through 13, 13. And in that area, what you're going to see is when Mark turns around and says, I can't handle mission work, I'm going to leave. That causes in Acts 15, 37 through 39, uh, Paul and Barnabas, Paul at one point did not want to travel with Mark. You see, Barnabas wants to bring Mark again, and Paul says, no, I'm not going to take Mark with me. I'm not going to do it. He walked out on us before, and and actually we're told in Scripture there was a sharp disagreement between him and Barnabas, and they went separate ways. So this is that same Mark that we're talking about. And 12 years later now, approximately, the best we can figure, Mark is considered now to be a fellow worker with Paul. He's called that in in, in the book of Philippians, verse 24 that Mark is now considered a fellow worker with Paul. Something had happened. From the time that Paul said, no, I don't want Mark to be with me, to 12 years later, now he calls Mark a fellow worker. Something has happened in the life of Mark. And part of what we can figure, what has changed, most likely it would be the fact that Mark, after leaving, after not being able to be with Paul and going with Barnabas, at some point ends up being connected with Peter. Uh, Peter disciples him. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter actually calls Mark his son in the faith. And the idea there is that Peter has been discipling and Peter has been working with Mark. And the interesting thing, most scholars agree that Mark goes on to write the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Mark, which was the perception from Peter, that he wrote the book as Peter's perception of the ministry that had taken place. And so we see that Mark becomes very prominent in the Christian world. He becomes a writer of one of the four gospel accounts. And most of that has to do with discipleship under Peter. And now he sees back with Paul and he's a fellow worker. And the interesting thing is at the end of Paul's life, this has been a relationship that's been up and down between Mark and Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, he specifically asks that Mark comes to him before he, before he leaves this earth, before he dies, the specific person that he asks for. He says, Luke is only with me. I want Mark to come too. And that's a beautiful picture of restoration in a relationship that looked like it had no hope earlier on. And so that is Mark. We know a lot about him by the other things that have happened throughout Scripture. And once again, I would encourage you to look at these, these verses. The next character that's mentioned is Jesus, who is also called Justice. Now, obviously, a lot of people in that time, a lot of Christians would not take the name Jesus. Like, if their name was Jesus and they came to know Jesus, they didn't want to get things confused, and they, didn't, they knew they weren't Jesus, so they felt weird about calling themselves Jesus. And so they would be given other names or take on other names. And so we see this Jesus takes on the, the name Justice. We don't know much about him. Uh, as we look through Scripture, we don't see him anywhere else mentioned, But what we can see is just by the simple change of his name that he was a man of character. See, his name, Justice, literally means righteous. It means righteous. He was a godly man. Uh, Whoever this man was, he accompanied Paul, and Paul saw him as a righteous and godly man. But no more is really known about him from Scripture, but he is mentioned here, so obviously he was important to Paul. Before we move on to the next uh, character, character six, Epaphras, we'll get there in a second, but I just want to mention too that Paul says here, uh, after talking about these three guys, he says in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 11, these are the only men of the circumcision among 
my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. He talks about these three guys and says, these are the only Jewish men that have stuck by me. Uh, Well, why is that? Well, if you think about what it meant for a Jew to convert to Christianity, it was actually a whole lot harder for a Jew to do it than for a Gentile to do it. For a Gentile, yes, there were some hard things and you would still face persecution. But if you were a Jew that was to break away from the Jewish faith and replace that with Jesus, that was a huge thing. And that was something that was hard to do and you would be persecuted for. Remember Stephen, the very first martyr, is killed because he tells the Jews that he believes in Jesus. And he tells them that they murdered Jesus. And when he does that, the Jewish mob stones him. And so we see that three men that were mentioned here are Jewish people who have converted to Christ, who have stuck with Paul through the thick and the thin. But then he moves on. Uh, to some guys who aren't Jewish, but yet are just as important to him. Character number six is Epaphras. Epaphras. Here we see a few things, and we talked about this when we gave the introduction to Colossians. Epaphras is actually the founder of the Colossian church. He was under the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. He gets saved. He goes back to his home in in Colossae and starts a church. And now this church is now the church of Colossae. It's the Colossian church. He's the founder of that church. And we see that here as Paul is talking about him. And as Paul talks about him, he says, Who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And then he says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea in the Hierapolis. Epaphras is a church leader, apparently, the founder of this church. He is a prayer warrior who is laboring for the Colossian believers. He is, he is praying for them and he is working hard for them. He is laboring for them. And that is something we need to understand. He is a hard worker and one who sees prayer as vital. And as he sees vital prayer, so Paul mentions him in his letter. Moving on to character seven, this is Luke. Another easy one to pronounce. This is Luke. Uh, we see that Luke was Paul's traveling companion, doctor, and friend. We know that Luke was a physician, We're told that in Scripture. Uh, It says Luke right here in verse 14, Luke the beloved physician. He's loved by Paul, we see in that phrase. He's Paul's doctor in a sense. He's there to be his physician. And he's greeting the people from Colossae. And we also know of Luke that he would go on to write the the books of Luke and Acts. He follows Paul along. And then as he follows and he's with Paul, he ends up writing the history of uh, one of the Gospels and then follows up with the history of the early church. He becomes instrumental in the New Testament, in the person of Luke. The last character we see that's with Paul is a man by the name of Demas. Interesting guy here that he's, he's listed in this list. Because if you actually look at 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, towards the end of Paul's life, actually what he says about Demas is that he has left him to pursue worldly living. So this is a man that at one point was with Paul, serving with Paul, important enough to Paul for him to mention in his salutation here. And as he's mentioning that, he goes on and ends up leaving Paul for the world. Just a real quick point of interest here. I think what we can see here is that starting well doesn't always guarantee a strong finish. That Demas, although he started well with Paul and he was important to Paul at this point, He obviously hadn't fully devoted his life to Christ because he would leave and not finish strong.
But, so these are eight guys, eight people uh, that Paul mentions. And after Paul mentions those who are with him, he then addresses those he's sending the letter to. So we can also see some of Paul's heart by looking at these people as well. So the first recipient of the book of Colossians, this is going to blow your mind, first recipient of the book of Colossians is the Colossian church, right? Uh, pretty obvious, okay? So we know that that is the first group that this is going to. Uh, and, and we see that back in the beginning of Colossians. Um, we say we see in chapter 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So we know that the Colossian church is the first recipient. All right, the second recipient of this letter is interesting, and that is the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church. Uh, we see here um, uh, that uh, not only is it for the people of Colossae, but it goes on and says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So we see a few things about this. This letter, after the Colossians read it, either they need to copy it and send another copy uh, over to Laodicea, which is only a few miles away, really, in the grand scheme of things, and they're all along that same area of, of uh, geography, and they're going to send that letter on to the church at Laodicea. Now we see a couple of things about Laodicea here. Um, there's a good chance when it mentions Nympha and the church in her house, there are some translations, actually, that that this is a masculine form, so it's a nymphus instead of nympha. We're not sure if this is a man or a woman, but the point is still to be made here that whoever it is has opened up their house for the church to meet there. Uh, and that's an important thing. And it's most likely that this is referring to the Laodicean church, that they're meeting in this house, in Nympha or Nymphus's house. And we see that to be true. And so Paul wants to make sure that he is acknowledging what's going on, even in Laodicea. But then the other thing here, it says not only were they supposed to pass the Colossian letter to them, but also that they would have a letter to pass back to the Colossians. That there would be a letter, uh, that there would be a letter to Laodicea that would be passed to the Colossians. Now we don't have in our Bible a book that is the epistle to the Laodiceans. Um, so where did this book go? Well, there's lots of questions about this. It could be a book we don't have, but most likely, uh, and this is interesting, uh, I just learned this myself really, most likely this letter is actually the book of Ephesians. Say, wait a minute, that was addressed to Ephesus. Well, a lot of the, the original manuscripts or the oldest manuscripts that we have of Paul's letter to Ephesus, it actually says, to the church of, and there's a blank. Why would that be true? Because this letter was actually sent to several churches. It was sent to be circulated. It was a circulation letter. It wasn't meant for one specific group of people. And you look at that and you see, you look at, then you look at the book of Ephesians and you say, wow, that makes a lot of sense as we've looked at how many things in Colossians and Ephesians are so similar to one another. And we see that this is most likely, and this is not a guaranteed thing, but most likely this is the book of Ephesians. Because it was sent to many different churches, and Laodicea would have been right in that Ephesus area. Okay, and that, so that would make a lot of a sense. But maybe it's not, but probably it is. Um, for today's talk, we probably don't need to go any further with that. Um, the last recipient that is mentioned is Archippus, and we see that he is the leader of, he is a leader in the, in the church, and he's asked to fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Uh, he, a leader in the church called out to take on ministry. 
Paul specifically wants to reach out to one person because what, apparently that person is struggling with taking the ministry that they have been given. And Paul says, take the ministry and do it well. And so now we've looked at characters, we've looked at recipients. Now that we've taken a look at the many characters in Paul's closing, uh, let's take some time to draw out some principles for us to follow as we think about what Paul has to say. So I know up to this point it's been very academic, right? We've been learning about people. But I think it's important that we understand that these people are not just people we don't know anything about. These people actually have had a history, and these people have a future. And that's interesting as we've looked at these things. And as we draw back from that, I believe there's three principles that we can see for our lives today. And these principles are going to show us what the Christ-centered life looks like. And Paul is going to show us these principles even in his closing here. The first principle we can draw out from this passage, I believe, is this. That the Christ-centered life is lived out in community. That the Christ-centered life is lived out in community. What do I mean by this? Our Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. You see, Paul is not alone. He's not alone in his ministry, and he points to the others who are serving alongside of him. Paul takes the opportunity in this letter to let us know that Paul is not alone. Paul, the great apostle, the one who would write most of the New Testament, who people come, came to know Christ, who suffered for his faith. We know so many things about Paul. He is a... He is a giant of the faith, really he is, and yet he acknowledges the fact that he needs other people, and that other people are with him, and that is what is so important to him. He wants to point that out. He didn't need to talk about all these people that were with him. He could have said, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul, I wrote this letter, read it. Okay, he could have, but he didn't. He wanted to point out that he's not alone in this. You want to, if you want even more to see that, if you notice in this passage, I won't look at all of them here because of time, but you'll see many times he mentions people as fellows. Remember, we had that sermon a long time ago, that we need to be fellows with one another. And the idea here is this, that Paul is saying, look, there are people that are with me, that are serving with me, that are loving me, that we are together in community. And that's what Paul says here as we look at this end. Now, this is not the only place we get this from. I want to draw out these principles from what we see, but then I want to look at other scriptures real quickly. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, if you want to turn back with me to that, Ephesians chapter 4, we see this same idea. And remember, this book of Ephesians is a very close match to Colossians. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Ephesians four fifteen and 16, this is what we read. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is talking about body life, and what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4 is that everyone in the church must work together for growth. Everybody in the church must work together for growth. As we look at this passage, we see here at the end, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Two things that are mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 4 is that when we are together as the body of Christ, there will be love and there will be work. That we will work together and we will love one another. That's not the only place in Scripture we find this. I believe that Paul says this again in Hebrews, and we could debate all day if Paul is really the writer of Hebrews. We don't know if he is or not. I believe he is, personally, but that's for another time. Uh, So, 
the writer of Hebrews, I'll say it that way, the writer of Hebrews, and this is a passage we are all familiar with, in Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to look at that with me, also tells us this very important truth. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we're told here in Hebrews chapter 10 is that everyone in the church must consider each other. Now this is interesting. I had another translation I was reading this week for the first time in a while, and I love how it puts this, and I think this is exactly what what the writer is getting at here in Hebrews. Instead of consider one another, it literally says this. It says, and let us watch out for one another. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Some of you are scared of it. I don't want somebody watching over me, but let's just think about it. Somebody who is watching out for you, looking out for you, caring about you. And as we look at Hebrews, we see it's important that we encourage one, another's in another, one another in love and in good works. Remember, we just saw this idea that we work together and we love one another. Hebrews says the same thing, that we love and work together. And of course, Hebrews, where we hear this so many times, it says not neglecting to meet together. This is just obvious, right? If we are going to be working together, and if we are going to be loving each other, that requires that we are being together. Like, you can't have love in isolation. You can't just, you can't have working together by yourself. That doesn't make sense. And so, Hebrews here is telling us, look, uh, it is important that we consider or watch out for one another. That we encourage each other in love and in good works. And so what I need to say about this is simple. That if you are living the Christ-centered life, you will be living it out in community. You cannot live out the Christ-centered life on your own. We are not an island, as some would say. We are not alone in this journey. Christ did not save us for just for ourselves, but he saved us to be with one another. And so whatever that means for you, however you prioritized your life, Is community important to you? Do you look for community involvement? Do you look for ways to be with one another, to consider one another, to work together? We're not in this alone. None of us can do this on our own. None of us can follow Christ the way we're called to follow Christ by ourselves. And I believe we can see this as Paul even himself, one of the giants of the faith, as I said, even he realizes that life is about others and not about him. And so the Christ-centered life is lived out in community. That's the first principle I believe we can see here through Paul's ending. But I believe the second principle we can see is this, that the Christ-centered life is lived out through discipleship. This goes one layer further. The the Christ-centered life is, first of all, lived out in community, that we're with one another. But the second principle is that the Christ-centered life is lived out through discipleship. And what do I mean by discipleship? Well, discipling, there's a book we're reading as elders and deacons, and this is the definition that that book gives. It says that discipling is helping others follow Jesus. And then I added a little bit to it. Okay, so helping others follow Jesus so that they can help others follow Jesus. This is what discipling or discipleship is. It's bringing people to Jesus, teaching them Jesus, leading them to Jesus, helping them grow in Jesus, and then sending them on so that they can help somebody else do the same exact thing. That is what discipling is. It's training others, building others up, and then letting them go to do ministry for others. That is discipleship, and the Christian life is about that. The Christ-centered life is about living discipleship. 
Christ commands us to make disciples. We know Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them what I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That's what Jesus says. Jesus tells us before he leaves this earth, his last command is to make disciples. And we've isolated that sometimes as Christians and said, well, that's just talking about evangelism. It's just talking about sharing our faith with people. That is part of it. But discipleship goes much further than that. Discipling, what Jesus told us to do, is not only to share the gospel, it's not only to share our faith, but it's also to help people know Jesus better. That doesn't end at salvation. That continues through. And so we are called by Jesus to make disciples as he did. We are called, Christ commands us to make disciples as he did. Mark three thirteen through 14, and, and Jesus is, we're, we're told is Jesus is finding disciples for the purpose that they are with him and that he'll send them out. I actually want to read that passage because it's, it's really good. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, this is where we see what we were just talking about, but it's a beautiful passage. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. All right, this is where Jesus calls his disciples. He says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he, whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Beautiful passage here. What do we see Jesus doing? Jesus says he's taking people and he wants them to be with him. That's the first part of discipleship, to learn from him, to know him, to be with him. But then it says also then to send them out. And Jesus' desire was not just to have buddies that hung out with him. The 12 apostles were not just his buddies, all right? Although he loved them deeply and they loved him deeply, that wasn't what it was about. It was about him letting them know him so that they could go out and preach for him and preach him to others. And we see that happening. After Jesus leaves, you see Peter on Pentecost and he gets up and he preaches and people come to know Jesus and we see that the disciples, the apostles, are whom the whole church, really, the the foundation continued through them. And that's what Jesus did and we're called to do the same thing. Make disciples. Spend time with people, showing them Jesus and then sending them out so Jesus can be seen in others. 2 Timothy 2.2 is also a common passage many of us knows. And many of us know, and it says that we need to, to pass on. Paul tells us to pass on what has been passed on to us. Teach others also what we have been taught, what Paul has taught Timothy. Timothy is told to teach others. And the same idea of discipleship is here. And we see that Paul did this. Paul was a discipler. That's where we get back to here in Colossians. Look at where some of these men ended up. These men who spent time with Paul... They didn't just spend time with Paul, and after Paul died, they went away because their friend was gone, so they had nothing to do in life. A lot of these men went on to be pastors. A lot of these men went on to be missionaries. A lot of these men went on to change the world for Jesus Christ. People like Mark who wrote a gospel. People like Luke who wrote a gospel in the book of Acts. People uh, like the others we talked about that went on to lead churches and went on to share the gospel with others. You see, Paul knew that not only was the Christian life, the Christ-centered life about being with one another, but it was about discipling one another. 
What does that mean for us? Well, I think it's simple to see, and yet it's not done very often, and that is that we need to be proactive about discipling others. That we need to find someone who needs to know Jesus better and more, and we need to go to them, and we need to help them, we need to live with them, we need to be with them, and then show them Jesus so that they can go and do the same thing with others. And on the other end of it, too, we need to also look for people maybe to disciple us. This is something that the elders have talked about a lot lately. We are really hoping and wanting to get to the place where this church becomes a church of discipleship. That it's one-on-one relationships, people that are building into other people who then build into other people. And we see that the ministry that happens here is not done just by a, uh, just by a few, but ministry is being done by everyone with everyone. That is a desire and a, and a vision that we are hoping to cast. And this is obviously seen that Paul did this in his life. And we should do the same thing. So community is important to the Christ-centered life. Discipleship is important to the Christ-centered life. The third principle I want to talk about this morning is that the Christ-centered life is lived in loving relationships. Say, so, wait a minute, didn't you already say community? Isn't that the same thing? Yes, in a sense it is. But here's what I want to point out. Paul loved these people very deeply. He loved them very deeply. And he showed his love for the Colossian church by signing this letter with his own hand. We haven't talked about verse 18 yet. But in verse 18 it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. See, up to this point, the letter had been written by a scribe, someone that Paul is telling who, what to write. And he was, uh, whether it was because he had poor eyesight or because of his age or whatever it was, he obviously wasn't well able to write well. And yet he took the time to write this last verse with his own hand to show how much he cared for the people that are with him and also how much he cared for the people that the letter is being sent to. He took the time to let him know that he truly cared for them. Once again, he didn't have to do this. He just had to have to say, okay, scribe, write that Paul wrote the letter. And he could have done that. But instead, he wanted to sign it himself and show that he cared. As we look through other places in Scripture, we see this, that loving one another is not only a command, it is our witness. Loving one another is not only a command that we're given, but is our witness to the world. John 13, 34 through 35, this is the passage that says, If you love one another, people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what the Bible says. It says if you want to have a witness for Christ, it's going to happen in the way we love one another. We are set apart from the world in our love, really, if you think about it. This world doesn't know what love truly looks like. Sacrificial love for one another is going to set us apart from the world. It's going to show them Jesus. And so not only is it our command, it is also our witness. But I want to make sure that we're clear on this. It's agape love, which if you don't know what agape love, it's that self-sacrificing choice to love somebody. But we are not only called to that love. Love is so much more than just the agape love. There is also, see a lot of times we go the other direction. We say you can love somebody but you have to agape them. You have to sacrifice for them and that is true. But then we can get so caught up in the idea that love is only about a choice that we forget that there is an affection there too. That we need to, agape love and brotherly love is our calling. Agape love and brotherly love is our calling. Romans 12.10, this is Paul. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Uh, that this is an important thing that we see. This isn't just about our choice to love one another. 
it's also about the fact that we need to truly love and care for one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Well, we start in verse 9. It says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Here Paul uses both kinds of love. He's saying love, yes, be genuine. Love is agape. Love means that you care about somebody else and sacrifice yourself. But he says also love one another with brotherly affection. This is what we see with Paul. We saw it in Philemon and now we see it in Colossians. That Paul did not just love uh, by making sacrifices. He did. But he also truly loved people. He had compassion and care and love and brotherly love for other people. So my question then for us as we think about that is, are we living our life in a way that we truly love each other? Or are we living it where we just tolerate one another? We tolerate one another. Or we, make, we, we will even make choices to show love, but we aren't pursuing trying to love one another with brotherly love. I'm not saying that's easy with everyone. Some of you probably don't like me that much, but I'm asking you to love me, all right? And I want to love you. But the whole point is that we need to love, yes, with our will, but also we need to work towards loving each other with our true heart for one another. And that's what our calling is. And so that brings us to our conclusion. I, I did okay, all right? Not, not quite an hour. Um, but here's the conclusion. To ask yourself these questions. As we looked at the end of Colossians, we looked at Paul's life, we looked at his writings, we looked at what he thought was important. Ask these questions of ourselves. The first one is, are you living for yourself? If you are, you need to center your life around Christ. We've been sharing the gospel each week. Christ lived a perfect life, died for your sins so that you could be forgiven, rose again to prove that he had power over sin and death, and he's waiting for you to come to him and ask him to be part of your life, to believe in him and give your life to him. And when you do that, you can have a Christ-centered life. But if you're only living for yourself, you're missing out. You will not have eternal life, and you are not living in the will of God if you have not come to know him as your Savior. And if that's you this morning, don't wait any longer. Find out, ask more questions, go to Scripture, give your life to Christ. The other questions we all have to focus on and think about. Are we living our faith out with others or are we trying to live our faith out in isolation? I've heard so many times, I can worship Jesus on my own. I don't need to be at church. That is a big lie that Satan has been telling people. You can't. You cannot have a true Christ-centered life if it's not with people. And you look throughout scripture, I'm not, it's not just Colossians, look throughout the whole of the Bible, you will see that being with one another and living in community is vital to your faith. It may work for a little while to be on your own, but ultimately you will fall because you don't have the community that God has called you to have. So are you living out your faith with others or are you doing it in isolation? We need to be doing it with others. Question I already asked again. Are you being discipled and are you discipling others? Are you looking for somebody to build into? Are you looking for somebody to share life with so that they can know Jesus more? And are you looking to share life with someone so that you can know Jesus more? Find ways to do that. And finally, are you simply tolerating others or are you truly 
loving them from the depths of your heart. And that's a hard thing sometimes. But we need to be praying. We need to be asking God for help. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to love one another. We can't do it in our own strength, but yet we're called to pursue love. Are you pursuing love in your life? These are the questions we have to ask as we come to the end of, as we come to the end of Colossians. Next week, we're going to look at one more time. What does Colossians say for each of us? But ask these questions. Are we truly in community, in discipleship, and are we loving one another with real relationships? Let's close our time this morning in prayer.